0: From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith, this is HealthLink on Air. Heart disease is still the number one cause of death in the United States, and today we're gonna to talk about some of the surgical interventions that can save and improve people's lives. In the studio with me today are two cardiac surgeons from Upstate, Drs. Randall Green and Akhil Sandhu. Thank you both for being here.
1: Pleasure. Pleasure.
0: So I know uh, heart surgery, there have been a lot of changes and advances. Um, it's been offered since the 1960s? Can you tell me, kind of bring me up to speed on where we are now? Because when it started, it was a major undertaking. Several hours surgery, right?
1: You know, heart surgery started in the um, late 50s, early 60s by accident for adults. Um, prior to that, it was just pediatric heart surgery that was being done. And How
0: did it start by accident?
1: Well, at the Cleveland Clinic, there was a cardiologist named Mason Sones, who was a big smoker, used to smoke in the cath lab. He um, was doing a heart cath, and the fellows used to do the heart caths, and he was doing it on a a baby, and um, everybody avoided engaging the catheter into the left main coronary artery because they were afraid if anything happened, because that's main blood supply to the heart, the patient would die. And so inadvertently, without them recognizing it, the catheter got lodged in the left main. They injected the dye, and all of a sudden, nothing happened to the patient, but they could see the entire arterial tree. And that started the whole process. And then there was a surgeon, Rene Favolaro, who did the first bypass um, uh, grafting using a piece of vein in an adult for a blockage in the coronary um, uh, from the aorta to beyond the blockage on the coronary artery. That's how adult coronary artery, uh, surgery started.
0: Wow. And it's just taken off from there. Correct. Wow. Interesting. Well, um, these days you might not have to open a patient's chest to do the surgery, right?
1: Right. So, um, you know, um, even, even today we still use the heart lung machine quite a bit in, um, for, um, uh, doing all kinds of heart operations, including, um, bypass surgery. Um, but we've gotten to the point where we can now, in certain cases, do it on a beating heart so we don't have to use the heart-lung machine. And um, that affords quite a bit of um, advantages, especially neurologic advantages, because you know, sometimes the large artery in the, uh, in, the, in the body that comes out of the heart called the aorta gets calcified. And, um, so that,
0: that means it's stiffened?
1: Yeah, it's like a concrete pipe. With cholesterol and plaque, okay. and and if you manipulate that, that can sometimes break off and cause um, injury to organs like the brain. Um, so if you avoid manipulating it, like you do with a beating heart, then you reduce that a little bit. And um, you know, I've seen um, in personal experience that patients bounce back a little quicker um, because you avoid the pump run. Uh, so, that there are some advantages to that. Um, going one step further, we can now do that with um, minimally invasive techniques, um, particularly using um, the da Vinci robot. And um, with three little holes in your chest and a little incision underneath your breast, we can uh, do at least two uh, bypasses uh, to the front of the heart that way.
0: Interesting. Well, I want to. You said the term, you know, beating heart surgery, and I, I have a vision of what that's like, but can you tell me more about how that works?
1: Sure. Um, uh, so it's just as it sounds. We never stop the heart. Routinely, to, in order to do heart surgery, we want a still heart, and we have to arrest the heart and protect the heart uh, with the patient on the heart lung machine in order to do that. Um, but in this case, we we've developed methods in which we isolate a portion of the heart that we want to work on, and um, keep that relatively still, and let the heart do its job.
0: Interesting. And you're able to suture and every well Yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. The
2: the alternative, Amber, uh, is using a cardiopulmonary bypass machine, as Dr. Sandu Sandu stated initially. Um, that uh, device really permitted us to take the first cardiac surgery through to where we are right now in the different iterations of evolution of that device really has brought us to a point where we can do extremely complex surgical procedures on the heart. And um, at, Although there is an opportunity to use a stabilizing system and not use a cardiopulmonary bypass machine to do coronary bypass operations, um, some of the most complicated things we do still requires cardiopulmonary bypass in that, t- in that tool. Um, Many of the studies that look at performing on-pump versus off-pump coronary artery bypass grafting surgery have failed to reveal any real substantive benefit. I mean, we have, we have uh, uh, learned colleagues on both sides that have preferences as to using it or not using it to achieve uh, coronary bypass um, but at the same rate, it's, it's a tool that the risk has gone down substantially. There, were, there, was, there was a great deal of conversation in the early 2000s about the consequences uh, to neurocognitive function, being on a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And that means that means uh, using that tool to artificially supply circulation and oxygenation to the body during the time that we have the heart stop to operate on it, that something was happening to patients in their... Uh, their uh, neurologic uh, function after being on a heart-lung machine was different. And the truth there is that none of those studies um, have ever come out revealing uh, time after time that there's any difference at all. So the point is, it's it's a much safer tool that we use now than, than we originally used back, obviously, in the 60s and 70s. Most notably, the number of filters that we put on the machine to make sure that what's going back into the patient's body is just their blood with no platelet aggregates or fibrin aggregates or small... Uh, piece of material that can that can uh, get lodged in smaller circulations like the brain and cause these effects so
0: so how do you decide if a patient if you're gonna do an operation on pump or off and does the patient have any say or or not?
1: Uh, That's a great question Um, for me I think um, you know the 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 decision to do it off pump really depends on the patient's condition so there are patients that um, are much higher risk uh, for being on the heart-lung machine um, or cardiopulmonary bypass. Uh, for example, those patients with um, very poor lung function um, that you don't want to use too much fluid uh, to um, oversaturate the lungs, and um, that would be a patient that I would definitely consider for off-pump surgery. Also, um, patients that you know before surgery, you're going to run into the problem with the calcified aorta, which we talked about before. Um, I, would, I would consider um, off-pump surgery in those cases. But remember, off-pump surgery is limited only to bypass grafting okay. and not to other types of heart surgeries like valve surgeries, where we really do need um, cardiopulmonary bypass and um, uh, arresting the heart.
2: I do think your question's a good one, then, ever. I mean, Akilat answers the question. I have a certain set of preferences um, in terms of patients that I see that I would use an off cardiopulmonary bypass technique versus using a heart-lung machine. But the question really is, you know, does a patient have a say in which technique uh, would be best for them? Interestingly, I do think that I have the same list of preferences where I may or may not use it. My list of preferences where I would not use it is an extremely small list. I pretty much use the heart-lung machine on every single patient. Um, but it you know now that I sit back and think about do I have that conversation with the patient to disclose that there are... Um, possibilities of not using the heart-lung machine, I, I, I suppose that I don't really have that conversation as much because, you know, when it comes down to having something like heart, heart surgery, any form of heart surgery, you really wanna make sure the practitioner you've chosen is using the tools and the team and the institution that they think will provide the best outcome for the patient. And so it's it's very much, I guess, now that I think about it, implied in the conversation that I have chosen to use the heart-lung machine without actually giving the patient a choice. So maybe, maybe I'll start doing things differently on Monday.
1: <laughs> no, I think that, you know, I would echo what you're saying, Randy. Um, and I think it's more uh, a tool than an actual um um necessary conversation for example you know it's it's something in the armamentarium that we could use to better um, treat our patients. So we don't go into the details of exactly how we do the procedure, even in a regular procedure, that now we're gonna you know, do this, and then we're gonna do that, and then you'll be on the heart-lung machine, and then we're gonna take you off, and then we're gonna start the heart, and then we're gonna, you know, all that. Right. We don't go into those details when we talk to patients. Right. Well, mo-
0: the majority of your patients are correct. not cardiac and then, and then surgeons, this is so, so they're one, gonna come right, in. Right,
1: and so this is just one of those um, uh, detailed uh, part of that yeah. that um, uh, procedure that we make those decisions often on the fly.
0: All right. Let me remind listeners this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Drs. Randall Green and Akiel Sandhu. They're cardiac surgeons here at Upstate. Uh, and Dr. Green, I wanted to ask, or uh, if you can tell us what you're doing for patients with atrial fibrillation. What are some of the options they have here at Upstate these days? Right.
2: Well, uh, a little history. So atrial fibrillation affects just a great number of people that, you know, we see around town every single day. And And so...
0: That's an irregular rhythm, heart rhythm. Right,
2: right. So typically we we run around in what's called a normal sinus rhythm at about 80 beats a minute. Um, Atrial fibrillation is an irregular heart rhythm that originates in our atrium and... Uh, has circuits uh, that are re enter over and over to create a faster heart rate that is irregular and does not have the coordination of the top and bottom chamber of the heart. Um, the way to stop that, uh, m- most frequently patients are treated with uh, medications that either control the rate or the rhythm. Um, Sometimes patients who have persistent atrial fibrillation and are symptomatic can undergo a catheter-based procedure to treat that irregular rhythm. That's done by a cardiologist called an electrophysiologist. And some patients who have highly symptomatic and resistant forms of atrial fibrillation uh, may be candidates for uh, a a surgical procedure to treat the atrial fibrillation. And a few years ago, several years ago now, I uh, went out and learned a surgical technique that had a very high likelihood of getting patients back into atrial fibrillation and it worked great. The problem was it was highly morbid. It meant re- it required general anesthesia. We had to take we had to make incisions in both the right and left chest under general anesthesia and, and use these special uh, tools to work behind the heart and create create burns in the heart, believe it or not, with radio frequency energy to block these electrical circuits from going around and around to achieve a high rate of conversion back to a regular rhythm. That I did for years here in town, and it was again very effective, but the patients really suffered to get through it. So, about a year and a half ago, I learned of a procedure called the convergent procedure that. Uh, allows us to make just a small incision below the uh, midline, uh, just in the upper portion of the abdomen. Above and that's the a, stomach. Uh, right, okay. right, right below the chest, and access the sac around the heart. And we introduce a catheter through that little incision into the sac around the heart, and we're able to create a series of, um, uh, of injury uh a series of injuries to the back of the heart that prevent these electrical rhythms from going around and around. The reason it's called the convergent procedure though is is because we're working in conjunction with an electrophysiologist. So the cardiac surgeon will do the surgical portion of the procedure, creating a set of blockages on the back of the heart, and the patient goes right into the electrophysiology lab where the electrophysiologist cardiologist performs a catheter-based procedure to treat the remaining portions of the left atrium where these rhythms can uh, re-enter with a catheter. So again, it's a way to draw on the expertise of a cardiac surgeon, accessing a part of the heart that the cardiologist finds difficult, and then uh, relying on the cardiologist's ability to access the part of the heart that the cardiac surgeon can't get to and allow those two uh, professionals to merge their expertise to create a high level Mm -hmm. of... uh, of conversion to a regular rhythm for patients.
0: How quickly does a patient see a difference?
2: Many of them see it immediately, immediately. Uh, The patients can have periods where they go into and out of atrial fibrillation for up to a year. We really don't call it a procedural success until one year comes around and the patient's in a normal rhythm.
0: Tell me which type of patient this um, surgical procedure would be appropriate for. Not everyone that has AFib needs this, right? right?
2: So So, so most of the time, the patients that we're operating on have been treated medically for a year or two, and medical treatment has been unsuccessful. They've undergone at least one, sometimes as many as four or five catheter-based procedures to treat the atrial fibrillation and yet remain highly symptomatic. And so these are patients who are working age people in our community that can't go to work. They can't. Uh, carry on their activities of daily living and are really searching for a solution to a to a
1: otherwise resistant problem. So can I can I ask him a question? Sure. So Randy, um, that was a great little snapshot about atrophib. As you know, it's a very nebulous disease. 1.2 million people in the United States are afflicted with atrial fibrillation, and if you talk to an atrial fibrillation patient, they know it you know, they know that when they're in AFib and it really slows them down. Um, You know, it takes away about 30% of your cardiac output, the amount of blood that you eject with every beat. Um, But it also uh, necessitates anticoagulation in patients um, oftentimes.
0: Can I ask what that is? Anticoagulation?
1: Uh, Blood thinners, the the need for blood blood thinners because when the blood stagnates or slows down in a chamber of the heart, it can clot and that clot then can move around in the body and cause problems. So the question I have for you is um, doing a maze procedure or a convergent maze or some surgical ablation um, in combination with other ablations to get a patient back into a normal rhythm, does that reduce the need for these patients to be on lifetime anticoagulation?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's probably one of the greatest benefits in addition to the increased cardiac efficiency, as you alluded to. Heart's a better pump when it's in a, in a regular rhythm. Um, anticoagulation, again, can be stopped at one year. Once we if I, once we call it a successful procedure, but the patients are fully anticoagulated for that whole first year. Now, there are times we can stop it early if a patient's demonstrated normal rhythm ever since we performed the operation, but that's a rarity.
1: Right. So and being and
0: able to get off the blood thinners is huge for Huge people.
1: deal. Huge deal. Just imagine, you know, you have to be on a blood thinner your whole life. You have to monitor the levels, the blood levels, to make sure that the, the medicine is, is right. doing it. Correctly, and you have to be careful. You can't do your normal um, if you're an outdoors person, you know, you can't do all those activities without having to really think about what you're doing.
0: Well, thank you so much. That's good information. I'm, I'm glad that patients have that um, available here in Syracuse. Um, my guests have been cardiac surgeons Dr. Randall Green and Akil Sandhu. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.